Please do be seated, and if you would keep your Bibles open to what we were reading there from Mark chapter 9. If you've closed your Bibles, that was page 1007, Mark chapter 9. And let us open with a word of prayer. Mighty God, we pray that now indeed you might help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your saving word, and so find, embrace, and hold fast to the hope of everlasting life in your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, dear brothers and sisters. We're continuing this morning our series through the Gospel according to St. Mark. We're now in chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. And in this part of Scripture, our Lord recommends to us a terrible and painful death. For here, he says, it would be better that a great millstone were tied around our necks and we were thrown into the sea than that we should cause a little one who believes in him to stumble. But to understand why our Lord should say something so shocking, let us consider the passage as a whole. In this section, our Lord teaches us three things, each related to salvation by faith in him. We'll see, first of all, how the disciples sinfully sought to stop someone coming to Jesus and trusting him and serving him. Second, we will see Jesus' warning of how terrible it is to stop or stumbling someone. That is, how terrible it is to prevent someone coming and embracing and ever holding fast the hope of eternal life in him. And the third thing we'll see, by way of underlining the second is Jesus' warning of how terrible it would be if we ourselves, or anyone else for that matter, should somehow be stumbled and fail to come to him and hold fast to him by faith. So turn now, if you would, with me to verse 38, where we will see the first of these things. If you're following in the outline in the middle of the bulletin, this is point 1a. Here, John speaking for the disciples, turns to Jesus and says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Why did they try to stop him? Because he was not following us. That is, he was not one of those 12 hand-chosen disciples of our Lord. Now, do you remember what the disciples were in trouble for last week? arguing about who was the greatest. Is that right? And does it seem like that's what's still going on here, isn't it? But this time it's not whether another disciple might be greater, it's, it's someone from outside who becomes a threat to their greatness. And even worse, this outsider is successfully doing the th- very thing that the disciples have been struggling with. He is successfully driving out demons in Jesus' name. It's as if they're thinking, well, if this guy carries on like this, then where does that leave us? We become like nothing, isn't it? But you can guess, can't you, our Lord's response to such a self-centered and sinful response. Point 1b, verse 39. Jesus said, do not stop him. But teacher, didn't you hear the bit about he was not following us? Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward 
to speak evil of me. Jesus is almost mocking him, isn't he? Come on, John. Surely you don't imagine that this man is driving out demons with my name and he's going to then go and start speaking evil of me, the one in whose name he's cast out demons. And and if he's not going to start speaking evil of me, what would possess you to stop him? Jesus, do you see, doesn't seem all that interested in guarding the greatness of the twelve, does he? And in fact, in the very next verse, he deliberately includes this man, not only as someone harmless to the kingdom, but someone who is actually for the kingdom. Verse 40, point B. For the one who is not against us is for us. Yes, he's not one of the twelve, but He does trust in Jesus. He trusts that Christ is the one who came into the world to defeat the devil. And so he is serving and acting accordingly in faith. He is not against us. He is for us. Do not stop him. And this actually goes further than just this one man. Because to Jesus, anyone who trusts in him and acts accordingly is a valued part of his kingdom. Indeed, he will reward and honor not just those who do mighty works in his name, but those who do what seem to be the very smallest things for the sake of the kingdom. That's verse 41. He says, For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, when we start seeing things from Jesus' perspective, it's not the exorcist that needs to stop, is it? It's John and the disciples. That exorcist is no enemy of Christ, but Christ's servant, serving others in his name as he sets them free from the affliction of the devil. John is actually standing against the very work of the kingdom. You kind of want to pull John aside, don't you? And, and say, John, come, don't you see When you're telling this man to stop calling upon Jesus, you're telling him to find someone else to call on. Would you drive him away from trusting in our Savior just to guard your own greatness? This man to whom Christ has granted not just faith, but the power to drive out demons in his name? What would possess you to do such a thing, John? It's chilling and scary, isn't it? How the devil can so smoothly take their sinful desires and use them to turn them and make them do his work. The Lord have mercy upon us too and grant us eyes to see our sins and the power to turn from them. Well, next, and this is point two. Next, our Lord, having exposed the sinful failing of these disciples, goes on to warn them in the very strongest possible terms against continuing to sin in such a way, saying to them in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now your Bible probably says sin rather than stumble. Is that right? But if you've got one of the church Bibles... Have a look right to the bottom and you see a little footnote. In this one, it's footnote number four, where it says, Greek, to stumble. That is to say that the word in the original language from which this is translated actually does mean stumble rather than just generally to sin. 
And that's important because it helps us understand how what he says relates to what's gone before. For what does he mean when he says, these little ones who believe in me? He means those who are like the unnamed exorcist who calls on Christ's name or the man who gives, or the woman who gives a cup of water to those who belong to Christ. Those who seem not great in the kingdom but seem to be perhaps little. And what does it mean to cause them to stumble? It means to do just what John and the disciples were trying to do trying to trip them up by driving them away from Christ in his name and, in effect, from the kingdom itself. Essentially, what our Lord is saying here is, whoever causes one of those little ones, one of those who seems perhaps not to have greatness or status, but yet who simply trusts in me, whoever causes him to stumble, it would be better that a millstone were hung around his neck and he be thrown into the sea. Well, having a millstone hung around your neck and being drowned in the sea sounds a particularly horrible way to die, doesn't it? But if you look carefully at what our Lord is saying here, he's actually saying that such a death is to be preferred. It would be better for him, better for him, if a great millstone were tied around his neck. What is our Lord teaching here? He's teaching that causing such a little one to stumble and so fail to remain in Christ by faith is a very, very terrible thing indeed. So terrible, in fact, it would be better for you to die horribly than to let that take place. But why on earth would we even be tempted to stumble someone else? And this is point C. Well, sometimes the temptation is similar to that of the disciples, isn't it? The temptation to push others down and push them away in order to make sure that we can stand and be great. It's a temptation which we know is all too common today, isn't it? Even in churches. We do well to take some time to examine our own hearts and and see if we're serving the kingdom or to see if we're serving the kingdom and not perhaps serving ourselves and using the kingdom as an excuse. Yet often the way in which people are tempted to cause others to stumble is through our desire and love of comfort. The gospel frequently makes enemies. The devil sees to that. And so Christians are often put under pressure to renounce the clear preaching of Christ. Such was the case for the godly Bishop of London, one Nicholas Ridley. In 1554, at a time when strong enemies of the gospel were trying to hide both God's word and the truth of salvation in Christ, found himself imprisoned in the Tower of London. Set before him were two options. He could consent to teach and confess the devilish system of penance and purgatory and salvation through our own good works and so deny and undermine the very gospel of Christ's blood. Or else, he could be burned to death at the stake. What should he do? Which would be better for him? Let me tell you, when the Bishop of Winchester, an avowed enemy 
of the gospel, sent a man to come and persuade him to renounce the truth. He refused him in the very strongest possible words. Indeed, he declared these very words of our Lord, saying, It would be better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck and he be thrown into the sea. And so, in accordance with his words, on the 16th of October, 1555, having been given one last chance to save his life and cause the little ones of England to stumble, he was taken to the place of execution. The fires were kindled, and he burned to death, slowly, with great suffering, until he died. Trusting in Christ to the end, and firm in the confidence that he would go from those agonizing pains into the arms of a savior who loved him and fully assured fully assured that it was better for him to be there suffering such a terrible death than that he should cause even one of the little ones to stumble in their faith in christ jesus our lord may the lord grant us grace to follow the examples of those who like the good bishop willingly lay down their lives for the sake of the true gospel of grace. May he grant us the same zeal for the salvation of others, even the least of those amongst us. But I wonder perhaps if some of us think that it is all a little bit over the top. Surely stumbling a little one is not that terrible that it is worth dying painfully for. Well, in our third point, verses 43 to 48, our Lord explains why such a stumbling really is as bad as he is saying. For here, point three, our Lord explains, if you will pardon the pun, what is at stake. By talking now to his disciples about how important it is that they themselves not stumble. Read with me what he says. This is verse 43. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He said basically the same thing three times to make sure we get the point. And the point is this. Stumbling has the most terrible result imaginable because it means instead of entering into life and the kingdom of God, you enter into the fire of hell. And that means that causing such a little one who believes in Christ to stumble effectively means sending someone who was on the path to life away and directing them back towards the fires. Little wonder, is it, that our Lord says so strongly it would be better for us that a millstone be cast, tied around our neck and we be cast into the sea, then that we cause such a little one to stumble. Now I know, I know that some of us don't like to hear about hell. 
It makes us feel scared and distinctly uncomfortable. But I want to say that is exactly why our Lord brings it up three times in a row. Do we fear hell for ourselves? Then let us do all we possibly can to ensure we enter life. And don't let anything, no matter how dear or precious it might be, whether it even be our own eye or hand or foot, prevent us from entering the joys of that kingdom by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we fear hell for others? Then let us heed Christ's solemn warning to us today and labor hard to make sure that we cause none to stumble as they come to find him and salvation. Let us work tirelessly to bring souls through the very gate of life itself. But point B, what is this gate of life? It is none other than Christ and faith in him. It is to come to know him who indeed came into the world to defeat the devil and sin once and for all. And to trust in him and him alone for the salvation he promises. Here, my dear brothers and sisters, here is him of whom it is written, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here is him of whom it speaks. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And he says to us, come to me. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So dear sinner, and I speak to myself as much as to anyone here, Dear sinner, I ask you, do you too wish to enter through that narrow gate that leads to eternal life? Then let us come to him, him who paid the penalty that our sins deserve to give us life as a gift by faith. Lay your burden of sins at his cross and find forgiveness through his blood. And having found it, brothers and sisters, Let us hold firmly to that faith and let no one and nothing ever cause us to stumble or turn away until that day when through faith and faith alone we enter into life through that same Lord, Jesus Christ. Because do you see, it really is all about that faith. Now the last verses of our passage, verses 49 and 50, are actually quite hard to understand. But it seems most likely that they are all about faith too. They start off with the word for, which indicates they're explaining what's gone before, which was all about faith. For, verse 49, for everyone will be sorted with fire. Sounds obscure, doesn't it? But it seems to be a reference back to Leviticus and our Old Testament reading where we saw that every offering that was to be offered and accepted by God must be offered with salt. Salt there, if you remember, was described as the salt of the covenant with our God. And here in Mark, 
the offering becomes the Christian, but again he must be offered with salt. That is to say, symbolically, he can be acceptable to God, provided he trusts in that covenant, the new and everlasting covenant by the blood of Christ. He urges us in the next verse, again using the same symbology, to keep that faith firm and to let nothing let us stumble, that we might last in faith to the last day. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And finally, again with the same symbol, he encourages us to have faith ourselves and to live in such a peace with one another that instead of stumbling one another or envying one another, we work together for the sake of the kingdom. Have salt in yourselves, he says, and be at peace with one another. So what have we seen today and what does it mean for us? Well, first of all, haven't we? We have been cautioned against that grievous error of letting our lust for greatness distort our vision of the kingdom and who God calls into it. Now, let me tell you, I believe that St. Mary's is a great church. And I believe there is very much in Anglicanism, which is good and laudable. And I hope you agree with me. But I, and I think all of us, need to be very careful that, that I don't labor to build up this church or Anglicanism instead of the kingdom of God. Let us examine our hearts and see whether we truly value the good and faithful teaching of Christ that happens in other churches and other denominations and even in the independent churches. May the good Lord open our eyes to see the bigger picture of his kingdom may help us fix our loyalty on him, that we may value all work for his kingdom and work together for the sake of his name as we win souls for eternal life. The second thing we saw, if you remember, was how terrible it would be to cause someone to stumble when he comes to Christ. We've seen that that would be no less than to stand perhaps between the very gates of heaven and this one who comes to him in faith. We've seen, haven't we, how very important it is in that, that the word of Christ goes out faithfully and unimpeded. And so it is my hope that in response we will resolve to become zealous advocates for Christ and his word, that we might commit ourselves to never ever stand in the way of the entry of poor sinners through Christ into his everlasting kingdom. May the Lord truly grant us that grace to cause none to stumble, but that through us he might be pleased to save souls for his eternal kingdom. But finally, we saw what a weighty matter it is to ensure that we ourselves enter into that life through faith in him. Let us take careful heed of his words and make sure that nothing hinders us from coming to him by faith and finding the forgiveness he has promised in his name. May we be from this day onwards, those who rejoice not in who we are or what we have done or how great we are, but only in our faith in him who loved us and gave his life for our sins. A little bit later in our service, we will sing our offertory hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood 
and righteousness. It's a beautiful hymn. It expresses a hope of faith built on the only foundation that will not fail. Christ's death, his blood shed for us. And the promise that if we trust just in that, we will indeed enter life in the kingdom of God. And so as we close, I'd like to read the first verse to us. So we might consider it. And then perhaps at the offertory, we might sing it as our own confession of faith in our Lord and our blessed Savior. My faith, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now to Christ, who redeemed us through his precious blood, be glory now and forever. Amen.